I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs, until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. Thank you, yes, yes. Welcome to The Navigationalist. I am your host, Jimmy Cheffin, and welcome. I am feeling good today. My vibrations are high, and I am ready to have a conversation about navigational strategies. Today, we will discuss what motherhood actually looks like in higher education and how to handle a person who has a bad case of mansplaining. And then we'll continue our conversations about our biased students. Joining me, I have two special guests, two friends of mine, Dr. Anna Cohen-Miller and Dr. Kim Case. This is exciting. And I also have my co-host, my colleague, Dr. Carolina Bailey. How are you? Fine. I'm actually doing super great. I had my coffee, so I'm like up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you look like you're freezing. Where are you? Uh, I am in my in-laws basement so that I can actually work and eat. They they are very sweet. They have tried to do everything they can to regulate the temperature here, but nothing works. <laughs> well, <laughs> big shout out to your in-laws for their support, right? And before I forget, let me remind our podcast audience, if you have a question for our guest navigationalist, please visit our website at greenbookforhighered.com. Okay, let's get to it. And Dr. Bailey will read the first question at the cafe. So, Hello. My name is Dr. Rodriguez. I am a proud mother of a beautiful baby boy. This joy was not without issues at work. For one, my male supervisor seemed not to know anything about my rights or FMLA, and it was my responsibility to find a substitute. Also, they left me out of projects saying they were trying to be considerate because I might be tired due to the pregnancy without even asking me. Why do people fall into this benevolence bias, assuming that we are protecting pregnant female employees because they cannot perform their work? Yes, I, I like this question because has, there are so many levels, right? Are they being cruel by being kind? Okay, okay, being kind in the workplace is a good thing. However, there's a certain kind of workplace kindness that carries a deceptive, harmful streak, a dark side, a kindness that backfires on itself and harms the person it was targeted to help. And then we have the increase of discrimination against those who are pregnant, especially in the 1990s and the 2000s. So how can we address this? Dr. Anna Cohen-Miller, please. That question brings up so many multifaceted issues. And so I was thinking about, about this and I've kind of been pondering about it. And at the very basic level, the issue is, is respect, right? That if we don't respect another individual then to make their own choices, to think about what works best for them, to, to know right for themselves what works, then then how are we expecting to have it, you know, any type of equitable, you know, interactions? So that's kind of the foundational level. Then 
So the idea of the rights, absolutely. This is an issue that, you know, so I started studying doctoral student mothers back in 2013 in the United States. And this was the reason I started is because actually I became pregnant with my first child. And I saw that in my doctoral program that two, uh, two other women also had become pregnant and we were all being treated completely differently. And it was all up to our individual negotiating strategies and just pure luck, right? So that is so interesting. What did that look like? You know, so one person had a faculty member who said, you know, absolutely, you have to be in class no matter what. It doesn't matter if you go into labor on that day, right? You will be counted absent. There would be a problem. You would miss, you know, whatever exam. Whereas others were like, well, of course, right? We understand you're a human being. This is a natural process. Let's find a solution, right? No, no big deal. And so um, this idea of what the rights are is that people don't know and they're not consistent. And many of them don't apply to many groups of people. So for graduate students, FMLA doesn't apply. Unless you're a full-time worker for a certain number of years, FMLA doesn't apply. So um, till we're willing to accept another human being at the same, that we're on the same level playing field, right? Like somebody who's pregnant isn't trying to cheat us out of, you know, so if I'm a faculty member, oh, they're just trying to, they're just saying that they're really sick, right? They're, they're saying that they're throwing up or they're at the doctor's office, right? Okay. In the same way that if somebody comes and says that, well, they broke their leg, the person who broke their leg, are, are you going to require them to take a photo of their leg to prove, oh, yes, I really have broken my leg and I can't drive right today to the classroom. <laughs> Thank you for that point. Uh, Dr. Kim Case, please. Um, also to educate the supervisor about the policy, right? That was also more time and energy on this woman who shouldn't be asked to do any of those things. So we have a systems problem here that just like every other form of oppression focuses on the individual who's being targeted and having all these microaggressions <laughs> that she has to deal with be the, the, the person that is, is the issue and the, um, you know, the, the challenge in the situation. The challenge is that the system hasn't educated the supervisors, hasn't trained the supervisors, and actually doesn't have maternity leave. The United States is one of the only um, industrialized countries in the entire world that doesn't have maternity leave. FMLA is not maternity leave. That is illness. And so we, we require women in the U.S. to define themselves as sick to get any maternity leave. And then what if they actually did get sick or a family member did get sick? They don't have that leave anymore. It's gone. You know, one of my colleagues explained that this is a systemic issues. You know, uh, I hear a lot about managers with no training in equity inclusions being hired or not even being trained or not even thinking about equity and inclusion. For institutions not to take control of, we, we tend in academia to throw people in leadership positions and then they have no training on policy, legal issues that Jimmy just mentioned, um, how to actually treat people with respect, thank you, Anna, and a sense of belonging, and not to put a burden on them when they're actually already experiencing a burden because they're being marginalized by the institution in the first place, right? So this goes back to implicit bias, unconscious bias, but just associations we have that are really, like, like she mentioned in the quote, benevolent sexism. And benevolent sexism is not positive, it seems like you're doing something helpful for someone. But as you also pointed out at the beginning, this is taking agency away from this person, agency away from her to say, do I want to be involved in these projects or do I not want to be involved in these projects? Right. 
Um, and sometimes those aren't necessarily unconscious decisions. Those are conscious decisions. So maybe we don't want her to be involved. So we say, oh, well, you were busy with your baby. So we didn't involve you, right? Sometimes it is definitely like they're just not thinking about it and sort of like we're trying to be helpful. But we've got to get away from that. And we have to educate ourselves if we're in the privileged groups. And um, I'm talking about men here. And or um, yeah, I'm talking about men. All right. Yes, we we are talking about men and we are we're talking about gender bias. We're talking about sexually objectifying women, assuming traditional gender roles. We're talking about uh, assuming being inferior. Right. So how do we address these bias? Uh, Dr. Corin Miller, please. That's great, Kim. I was going to add to that. Right. So you mentioned this, the bias that's huge and microaggressions. And so for men also, right, to learn these concepts, but for women or not, not but, an and, right? So this has, the concept of being pregnant, at least in the U.S., has in the workplace, has been so systematically ingrained as something that, well, you don't talk about. It doesn't take away from anything that you're doing. It invalidates, right, who you are. And so it's often hidden that women will you know, unconsciously or consciously, right, that we have trained ourselves like, oh, well, you know, I did it, right? I just, you know, as as some of my participants would say that, well, like their, their supervisor said, well, I'm sorry that we're working past five, right? I know your child's in daycare. Just have them stay an extra hour, right? That's what I did with my kids. Or just have your, you know, your mother, your spouse, your somebody pick them up. That's what I did. I managed it. You can too. Right. And so it misses exactly the whole structure, the cost of the daycare, the that you have somebody else to support you, that you have this extra time, all of these different aspects. And so potential solutions. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm in many conversations talking about the pros and cons of training and how it is delivered, how it should be delivered. What about training? Can professional uh, development help? I mean, does it help? So there can be trainings. There's some, you know, contention about whether, you know, bias training or unconscious bias training helps. In some cases, it can. In some cases, it doesn't. Right? I see you. Right, Doctor Kim, you're saying no. Also, microaggression, micro, and that training is that that's the bystander training, right? So then that's the case when someone in you know, you're interviewing students and, you know, for graduate studies and somebody starts to say, oh, so tell me about your family situation. Somebody else can then say, oh, actually, that we're not going to ask about that, right? We're not allowed to, or we're just, we're going to deviate around that. Or somebody who is trying to be nice, like, oh, well, it's going to be too hard for, you know, this woman to go into the field to conduct research. Somebody else can then also jump in, right? Who has had training who knows, you know, knows what's going on to be able to say, well, is that quite right? Right. So maybe they don't know what the rules are, but something doesn't sound quite right about that. Right. Like, shouldn't we ask her? Yeah. And I and also like um, I was thinking about what Dr. Kim says about that it is being seen as an illness. And then all of a sudden you have when uh, when a woman is pregnant, they have to take maternity leave and it's like, oh, OK, well. Well, we have to give it to her because it's the law, but it is not out of like out of understanding or respect or compassion. And then on top of that, I, for me, brings like the other side of the coin that then all of a sudden, if a male is going to take some paternity leave to help their spouse or their partner, then all of a sudden they 
they there is like a stigma that they can't because it's like what do you mean you were not the, you were not the one that gave birth are you serious you know so then all of a sudden it's like then then they like I think that that also kind of like continues with the perpetuation of you know they are the ones that have to like have the rule on this they say on this and yeah we have to give it to women but men are not allowed to do that either you know so it's it's a, it's a strange this dynamic you know like i understand it for for female that is like dragging their feet by law we have to give it but for males if they want to do that is it gets like there is a more complicated nuance on that i think I want to mention an example of a, I know Anna has all kinds of great data, example of a provost I used to be under report in a reporting structure who um, said once out loud in front of our faculty senate representatives, well, if we allow women to take an extra year because they had a child or brought a child into their home, because adoption was also, you know, a possible option, um, then they're just going to, they're just going to do that so they can have more time to do their research. And our faculty senate president at the time was a woman and she just like couldn't control herself. And she just like laughed out loud in his face because, and we would always make these jokes like, yeah, I'm going to just have babies so they can be my research assistant because surely I'm more productive when I have an infant, you know, just the logic of how he never had to think about it. He had a wife who stayed home and raised his kids, right? You got to get out of your own head and your own perspective on these things. You see, that's great, right? So that laughing out and mentioning it, that it made it clear right from right from that moment, right? That's not right. It makes no sense, right? Whereas what the research actually shows is that if there's a heterosexual couple, right? And the woman, the woman has a baby, they're both, let's say, faculty members. So her research productivity goes down, she would expect. His research productivity goes up. Actually, it doesn't matter if she's a faculty member or not. If there's a child, right, that if a man is a, fa a male faculty member has a child, his productivity goes up. By and large, it seems like it's because now there's somebody at home more to take care of household things. And so it's um, this idea also, right, drawing from what you were saying, Carolina, about, you know, the differences in how men and women are, are considered. The While there is some stigma, yes, for men to take paternity leave when it happens to be available, there's also this extreme other side in terms of, you know, the examples people give of, you know, the man at the grocery store with the child, right? Like, oh, that's so wonderful. You're taking care of your child versus, right, the the woman like, oh, oh, she has her child with her again. Oh, okay. Exactly. And and for me, it's kind of like, are you, are you going to give a medal to him but not to her? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> I'm here. I'm writing notes. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about benevolence bias. This way of making bad decisions. You know, research shows that people who accept benevolent bias, consciously or unconsciously, male or female, are more likely to perceive women as incompetent outside of domestic roles. And this also relates to other groups who have similar experiences. So let me give you three words. Watch for praise. Because benevolent bias is often coupled with praise. If you're being praised for an unimportant task or being kept away from challenging high-risk projects, you're probably working on a project that won't count much when it comes to performance evaluations. Right. 
As a consequence, the praise you receive will be irrelevant. Secondly, sometimes praise is genuine but has nothing to do with your actual job performance. You may be praised for your attitude, for being nice, or even dressing nice. This compliment makes you feel good, good inside, but it will do nothing during promotional time. Um, thirdly, sometimes praise is a mask for a supervisor's true opinion of your ability. So please pay attention. Wow, great conversation. Now we're off with our second question with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. I thought this thing of mail explaining was a myth until I was at a meeting. He re-explained every detail I have just explained, like I did not have an engineering degree. When I have an idea, they never take me seriously unless a male co-worker expresses it as his idea. How do I disrupt this? Awesome. And so I'm, I'm glad we have this question because the idea of mansplaining is not new. It's explaining and help me if I get this wrong, but it is to explain without regard to the fact that uh, explainees knows more than explainers. And often this is done by a man to a woman. And of course the term was dubbed when a man explained a book that the author wrote who was a female without acknowledging that she herself wrote it. I see this happening every day. How do we disrupt this? Dr. Kim Case, please. Like, am I crazy? Did my mouth open? Did sound come out? Do I that, but I said it in my head. I mean, there's a lot. So, Jimmy, I'm, I'm going to make you answer this, but I want you to think about what you do when those things happen. You know, do you then call attention back to the woman who said it? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, thanks for asking me that because before this conversation, before the podcast today, I've truly been exploring myself. I mean, I've been asking myself, how do I respond when I see mansplaining in a meeting? And I've actually witnessed this last week. Actually, a woman articulated something that sounded like a great idea and a man followed and he repeated what she said if she said nothing. I I don't know if it's right, but I use humor to address microaggression against me. And when I witnessed it, I made fun of it. I was like, did you see that? She just said something he repeated exactly what she said like it was a movie or something and we laughed but now since i'm thinking about it i wonder did he actually get it what i have noticed myself doing when i say that i i am very direct like right sometimes it's for because sometimes it's not that great I oh thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> so I I will be like, wait a second, this is exactly what she just said. So I tend to point it like as direct as that because I have seen it so many times doing uh, doing that at me and nobody standing up for me that I that I have decided myself to be that forward. Yeah. So I'm gonna give you so three terms: amplification, which is the action we can take, and it doesn't matter what group we're from. And actually, if you're from the group in particular that is the privileged group doing that at the moment sadly the data says you'll be listened to more that shouldn't be true but it is and there's two other terms he peat which is when a man is repeating what a woman said he peat and also rewrite so if we can get these terms out there it kind of helps us attach our brains to these phenomena that are happening and it also makes it legitimate like oh i am feeling a thing and it's a systems thing back here 
It's not, I'm not the only one this has happened to. This is a pattern. This is a pattern in our institution, but also all the institutions, right? And it goes back to, again, unconscious bias. But that doesn't mean we have to let that rule how we behave. And so if people are working on being what I call really intersectional allies, get into that later if we have time, um, then they have to be willing to say, okay, unconsciously, I'm not going to even see this person. This is about invisibility as well. So women be rendered invisible, people of color being rendered invisible. Like, why would they know that you said that when they don't even see you? Hmm. Right? And they can't see that you have an idea if you're not even in the room, even though you're physically there. So it's about making people more visible. Carolyn is right on top of it. Call back. Say, you know what? I also agree with what Susan said five minutes ago, which is where your comment came from. I'm glad you built it on what built on what she said. And say her name five times in the comment. Like, make her visible, visible, visible. At least at the beginning and the end. Or Jimmy. Jimmy. Jimmy said it was a great idea when he said it. You know. And so it's not necessarily shaming anyone, but they realize, oh, I guess I didn't pay attention to that. Now, sometimes the bad news is people will say, right, but Jimmy didn't explain it in a way we could understand it. This person over here did. So there's that. And I want to also just share so people know that the social psychology behind this is that when you feel invisible because systems aren't acting on you this way, it has really serious mental health consequences. And so they cannot be ignored. And they're not one-time events, right? They happen daily. They happen throughout the day. And Anna has them. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's... Amplify, repeat, repeat. I have to remember that. Uh, Dr. Cohen Miller, please. No, it's great. This is like, I'm so excited with all the, these points that you brought up because they are, thank you so much, Kim. Right? Like, so amplifying the voices, I think of those who have been historically marginalized, right? Like, again, this is a system. This isn't a one-time thing. And when we think about then, uh, there are a couple, a couple different aspects here. One about we're going to bring in culture again and pop culture. And then also as we go into online spaces. And so with pop culture, and this is, I've been interested for many years and working um, at the intersection of popular culture and pedagogy and run a journal on this and that I'm editor in chief of. And what it, in the, that journal work and along with my work with like gender audits, right? These are ways that we can highlight issues of gender in, in, in equity and you know, um, inclusion or exclusion. So we, if we think about our own campus, so for instance, I, you could have students or you could go around the campus and look at when you're back on campus, or you could look on, we've also looked at social media accounts. Who is being highlighted, right? Do you see yourself? Who, who do you not see, right? So, all right, so you don't see yourself. Do you see your colleagues, right? Do you see anybody who looks like this group? or that group. What, and that could be everything from tall to short to color to size, right? Like, all right, are you seeing anyone um, in the descriptions described uh, with different languages, right? Are there any translations of what is being said? Are there descriptions of the, if the image itself, right? So those who can't see, right? Can their screen readers understand what is actually being portrayed there? And so on campus, right, this is something that then we can address and it goes back to, you know, multiple different types of biases. If we have imagery on campus and in these online spaces that actually show 
show women, right? So the female scientist, right? This is a common example, right? That show men doing something other than the hard science, right? That also is useful. If we show, you know, um, signs for a, you know, a family room, right? Mm -hmm. Whether, or you're calling it the mother's room or you show, if you have, uh, we now amazingly, right after a lot of work with uh, the Consortium of Gender Scholars, which we started a few years ago in interdisciplinary collaboration to move forward, right? Research on gender, the adding yeah. changing tables, right? And so changing tables now, we haven't had them, but now we have them in, in women's restrooms and in men's restrooms, right? Mm -hmm. So in both. So it is whether or not, you know, a man brings his child into the, to the bathroom, it is a visual symbol that you can, it's possible, and you're, and it's there, right? The resource is there. And so, it, yes, it's, it's huge. And I am, I'm really proud of my university for that work and moving that is super huge. And I love the idea about auditing your campus, gender audits. I'm asking all underrepresented faculty to audit your campus, audit your department, audit your unit, your workplace, your college, your mentor, yourself, right? So we all need to help in addressing mansplaining. So if you're not in Sweden where they have a mansplaining hotline, the best person to handle the job is you. So, of course, maybe my less confrontational way needs some work. So here are some other ways. Develop some quick jabs like, I appreciate that, Jimmy, but I got this. Practice seeing that in the mirror and tell them again who you are. Excuse me, but that comics make me wonder if you know my background. And then, allies, it's time for you to wake up. Help redirect the conversation. But most importantly, a conversation is needed. Because this mansplaining thing is making me, I mean all of us, feel a type of way. All right, now we're off to our third question with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Okay, I just completed this course. It was awesome, or at least I thought it was awesome. I had two white students who were very rebellious and confrontational at first, but I continued with my lesson. I gave them an assessment to get a vibe and they talked great about me, <laughs> but on gradeyourprofessor.com, they described me as caring, easy, soft, pushover, while they are addressing my male colleagues in more professional terms. How do I address this bias with the students? <laughs> Have you ever looked at your account on gradeyourprofessor.com? What? Never heard of it? Well, yes, it has over 19 million ratings, 1.7 million professors, and over 8,000 schools on the site, but it's pretty much biased. It pretty much tells you which professor is the easiest and which one's the most difficult. But it's sprinkled with bias, like our student evaluation system. Research shows that students systematically give lower teacher evaluations to women and people of color than to our white counterparts. So tell me, what is going on in this scenario? We have at least five things happening here. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say all of them, but we've got I would say direct directly being aggressive with the woman of color faculty member. I'm assuming it's a woman of color faculty member, the way she described that the students were white. White people don't seem to point out whiteness, which they should, but they don't. Um, and women of color faculty and what they face in the classroom, 
the stereotype threat they face in the classroom, and then, of course, the classroom management issues that come up because of students' bad behavior, right? We have that. We have the decades of history of research on student evaluations that show they're biased by race and gender and other things. But, hey, the intersection of race and gender for women of color, that is real. That makes student evaluations even more scary. But yet we still evaluate people on these things, right? Then we have the industry of the online go um, say bad things about your professor industry, which I'm not even going to address because I don't think they need any more of our attention. They, they all need to go away. Um, but we also have, what does this mean for this person in terms of their annual review, their merit pay, their promotion, right? And of course, what does this mean for their sense of belonging at a university? Right. I mean, that's a whole other. So there's like seven or eight things at least in this. Um, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, you know, one thing I want our podcast audience to understand that we have similar realities. Uh, we share in similar experiences. We want our people to understand that these experiences are real. Uh, have you had experiences such as the one right here on this we're discussing? My experience with students being rebellious and confrontational was about the content I was teaching, not my race, but it, my gender was also part of it, right? Um, because teaching about whiteness to white students who don't want to learn about privilege, for example, can get some reactions out of people. But I still have my whiteness when it came to my department chair and my dean looking at my student evaluations and not holding that against me, right? So I had built-in protections based on my social location. Women of color faculty don't have the trust in the administrative system, and they shouldn't, that those students going complaining to the dean, for example, wouldn't be a mark against her when it comes up for, especially promotion and tenure, for example, right? And um, my black and brown uh, woman of color faculty colleagues um, that I've worked with individually, you know, on a campus, but also nationally, they face this in every single class meeting and they face it in their evaluations and they face it in their merit review and they face it in the promotions. And this goes back to lack of training for the people, well, first of all, we aren't questioning the student evaluation system. I will say this, for the person in the situation, there are some things we know from the research, and I don't think they can erase the intersectional racism and gender, you know, racism and sexism this person's going to face, but there's some things you can do when you're giving out student evaluations that can focus the students a little bit, it primes them a little bit to do what you need it to do, which is actually tell you about how the course went, not about whether or not you're a nice person, or you were friendly or motherly to them or, you know, friend, smiled a lot, right? Or whatever it is that women are expected to do with their students. And by the way, none of those behaviors that when they're lacking affect men at all. You, and there's some research that you can be competent as a woman faculty member or warm. You can't be both. And men can be both. So I was going to say, just like when you're saying, hey, I'm going to go out these evaluations today and here's why we have them. <laughs> I want future students to benefit from what you've learned about this course and what works well for you, right? I want to make sure that I'm making adjustments based on maybe what you see as a, a way that would help you learn more. If you focus on learning, 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 student success, learning, what in the course worked for you? I want to improve this course for future students. You're part of the responsibility for this whole community to make this course better. It's about that. It's not about you. And I know there's questions on there that are about you. But if you prime them about what the point of this evaluation should be, 
the qualitative comments focus on that more. Mm -hmm. There's less, a little bit less gender bias that we see. I don't know if there's research on race bias going down, but, you know, bringing them into the idea of why would we have this as a, as a thing you fill out. And um, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea sometime in your course to talk about how there's bias in these things. Yeah, because for example, in my own experience, one thing that marked me a lot, uh, for example, was one specific, this is not my scenario, by the way, but um, <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, but there was a student that he enrolled in my class and he was upset about the fact that I had an accent. And he didn't wanted me to teach that class. And the thing is that he enrolled in my class thinking that I was a white person because of my last name, but I'm married, right? So, so he was he was outraged, and he was um, he stayed because he was the only one that worked for his schedule. But he made sure to make my life miserable. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like, and when I saw um, because. Unfortunately, uh, Dr. Kim, you're, you're right. I should not have given traffic to grade my professor. But I was curious and I was like, oh, I can see this is this person. This is this person. I could see that it's like the bitter students that will go there. And it's like, and then if there are some institutions that are looking at that, then all of a sudden they're only getting like the snippets of few students versus the whole class. And, and it's very unfortunate that for of color faculty, that that becomes a guillotine pretty much for any prospect for promotions or anything. Yeah, so so people will continue to use the evaluation system. And in some areas, it's related to promotion, tenure, and others. Universities and colleges are not changing anytime soon. So how should we respond to this? You've, you've highlighted these incredibly important points and like the individual going back to like, do we think about the individual or the system, right? So, so the individual, I need to not look at my evaluation. Oh yeah, just don't look, right? People say, right? People always write, you know, only those who really love you or really hate you. But at the system level, the institutional, the systematic processes that are in place, this is what needs to be disrupted, right? So, Jimmy, you were talking about disrupting, and you were talking about this is the same thing. Uh, you're also mentioning, Dr. Kim, right, where we need to then see how this all fits together and how it systematically invalidates groups of people, right? And so across the board. And so there, there are lawsuits in the U.S. right now about the student evaluations, right? How can we use something that we know is systematically biased and, and yet we are, right? So we're still using it. So then where it takes me to is that, well, all right, we need more voices at the table who understand this and who can speak to it at leadership levels, right? I mean, that's already an issue, right? In terms of being able to get to leadership levels. Then, um, but if you are at a leadership level, then it gives you more of a chance to be able to say, we need to do something, right? Or in your department, you're on a committee, so our quality review committee, right? So we talk about this and how, you know, the student evaluations, maybe we just term them student feedback, right? It's just within our, you know, our graduate school, right? We tend to now say student feedback, but it shifts it, right? That terminology that no longer the student is evaluating our ability to teach, the questions don't ask that, they're not trained for that. And then we can work bit by bit to 
actually remove the either the evaluations themselves or not have it at a basic level, just not have it count for things like merit and promotion and retention. And and so these online one thing that then, you know, connects back to our last question, but as an important way that if you don't have a powerful place at the table, there are many spaces. So like at maybe academic council or Senate, maybe you're not one of the you know official members, but you're an audience member. Now that we're in Zoom or in Skype or whatever other online spaces, there tend to be a chat space. And those chat spaces, when open, provide a counter narrative. They provide a chance to go ahead and, you know, I could type something. Has somebody thought about, you know, you know, the decades worth of research that show that, you know, student evaluations aren't the best way to understand our teaching. And then somebody else can jump in and say, great point, right, Dr. Anna, right? And then somebody else could say something. So maybe it's not within the main conversation, but maybe it becomes a part of it or it becomes saved and it gets the word, the words out there and gives a chance to bring more people to the table. Yes, and I agree. So now you know and I know and our podcast audience knows that student evaluations contain bias against women and people of color. And this is, is a common practice. So if I was you, I would start a conversation. How are evaluations being used? Is it in writing? Where is it being housed? That would be a great place to start. So I'm looking at my monitors and my navigational guests look so excited to give our podcast audience one piece of advice to navigate as a underrepresented faculty. Could you give us, please, one piece of advice? I'm not going to say it in one sentence. I, I'm not sure I can narrow it down like that. But um, if for, I had started off right talking about respect. And so with respect, that the way to get there is about raising awareness. And so we've talked about this in trainings. We've talked about this in visuals, right? What does a leader look like, right? What do your, you know, your um, pamphlets and advertisements about your university, your department look like, right? Who are they showing as the leaders? And so who are they showing as the educators? Who are they showing these different roles? And so through awareness building, then we can actually get people through that process to to have those aha moments, the, um, okay, oh, I see, that is a problem, right? Like, I can't believe that happened to you, Carolina. And holy crap, you're, a, excuse me, you're a wonderful, you know, educator, right? That you were able to move through that. And that must have been so hard, right? And so stressful. And yet you moved through, like, that deserves a teaching award. Awesome. Clearly raising awareness, right? She mentioned educating yourself. But it is so comfortable to get stuck in educating yourself. And so also Dr. Anna mentioned action, right? So educate yourself and that's a lifelong journey. So you're not done. Don't ever think you're done or you're in super trouble. But while you're educating yourself, educate others. And how can you sort of amplify other people, right? When their work isn't being credited, how can you get in, um, you know, certain committees on campus that are working on policy change? And how can you bring the lens of what's what's happening with this policy on the ground and how it actually plays out for people that we don't even know when we write the policy that it has um, marginalizing implications for people. It's not a diversity inclusion policy. I'm not even talking about those. The regular policies 
don't think are diversity inclusion policies are where this happens, where the disparities come from, because the people writing them come from a certain lens most of the time. And it's, it's a white lens and it's a male lens. And so we can start to work on that. So, you know, how can we start to be action oriented allies to people who may or may not be our in-group members? And that's fine. And we have to learn then how these policies are impacting different groups of people in ways that are not fair. And even if it's unintentional, it still has to be fixed. Right. And yes, you have unconscious bias. Just accept it. Get over it. But that doesn't mean you have to act based on those biases. You can learn to intervene cognitively and train yourself to think through, oh, well, I don't want to take action based on that. So I need to really think clearly about what I'm doing in this space. Am I taking in a committee meeting, in a policy that I'm uh, giving feedback on, or I'm in a committee that writes a policy or enacts a policy, am I taking the lens of the least recognized, the most invisible, the most disempowered people that this might impact? That's the perspective I have to bring into that room. And you can, we can train ourselves to do that better, right, over time. Thank you so much for joining us. You two made this show a blast. Thank you. This is Navigational Report 4685. First of all, I remind you over and over again that benevolent bias is a real thing. Be aware of benevolent bias while you are auditing your workplace, auditing your campus. Tell your friends, tell faculty to be aware of benevolent bias because we all carry the same unconscious programming. Be weary of supervisors and career gatekeepers who exhibit overly caring concern and protective attitudes. You are not here to sit on the sidelines. And the next time I hear someone mansplain, if you don't check them as your intersectional ally, I surely will. And lastly, always have your things in order. Don't leave anything to chance. Find out how faculty evaluations are being used at your college. Well, today was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. On our next episode, we will talk more about navigational strategies with Dr. Barat Miro and Dr. Mariela Fernandez. See you on our next episode on The Navigationalist.